0: Thank <laughs> you. Melbourne's diverse poetry scene.
1: Poets using their voices to entertain, to move,
0: to take you on a journey. Connecting you to grassroots poetry and performance. Good morning, and welcome to the Three CR Spoken Word Program. My name is Di Cousins, and today I'm talking to Sarah M. Sale, who is the author of *The Flirtation of Girls*. Welcome, Sarah.
1: Hi, Di. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Well, I'm so glad uh, you're able to find the time to be on the program. Um, you've been—you're an Australian poet and writer of Palestinian, Lebanese, and Egyptian heritage, and I understand you've been very busy lately.
1: Uh, Yes, obviously, with everything going on in Gaza at the moment, Palestinians uh, in Australia and across the world have been advocating on multiple fronts, doing everything that we can. To try and stop and, and call for an immediate ceasefire, as you can imagine, that means a lot of lobbying, a lot of, you know, with politicians in, in parliamentary hallways. It means um, trying to uh, get our story out there in media, trying to uh, organize and, and uh, raise awareness amongst communities and build solidarity. So there's, there's been a lot, a fair, a fair bit going on.
0: Right and um, so tell me which are the organisations that uh, are representing the interests of Palestinians at the moment?
1: Well, one of the um, organizations that's doing a lot of important work is the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, and the Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, or APAN, as it's affectionately known, um, has been uh, doing a lot of sort of critical media and policy and and political lobbying work, which I think is really needed at the moment, especially in the absence of uh, humanitarian aid being able to go through, for for the most part, in Gaza. So, you know, talking to politicians, bipartisan uh, efforts to, you know, to try and ensure that we reach not only a ceasefire, as I mentioned earlier, but also uh, an, an calling for an end to the occupation uh, of, of Palestine altogether. So I certainly encourage people who are interested in doing something to support APAN, um, you know, financially or with resources, time, skill, that sort of thing, always looking for volunteers. And another organization would, would be um, BDS. So these are, which is the Boycott, Divestment, Sanction Organization. Uh, BDS Yes, essentially um, encourages people to look at uh, the sort of uh, organi- companies and organizations that you might be affiliated with and ensure that they're not complicit in what is happening in Gaza at the moment.
0: We're recording in mid-December 2023 and I think it's up to 18,000 people killed already and it, it's just terrific.
1: Indeed. I mean, look, there is obviously, we are feeling a lot of trauma and a lot of grief at the moment and it's it's getting it has been really hard to function for quite some time now I'm not I'm not going to sugarcoat it but at the same time you know my in wanting to hold space and honor all of these feelings that we are collectively you know uh, coming together and and feeling I also um want to sort of reinforce that it's really not about us, but it's about the people on the front lines who are doing everything they can, fighting every single day and losing so much, losing their lives, losing their loved ones, losing their homes, and For me, that's what I think is is keeping us going because we we owe uh, people in Gaza, Palestinians in Gaza, we owe them endurance. We owe them the discipline and the commitment to keep going even when we're tired um, because... This is a genocide, and uh, I think there's really no we we have no other option, no choice but to keep fighting and to keep pushing and keep calling for that ceasefire.
0: And anyway, one of the ways that the artistic community channels trauma and deep experiences through poetry. And um, congratulations on your your first full-length collection, *The Fertation of Girls*. Uh, what how do you say the title in Arabic? Uh,
1: it's Ghazal al Banat.
0: Wonderful. And uh, so, tell me, what brought you to poetry?
1: Well, my poetry origin story is sort of a funny and a funny accidental one, <laughs> um, if we can call it that. I, you know, I've been writing for as long as I can remember, and. I think, you know, writing in various disciplines, but particularly focused on sort of non-fiction and academic writing, and at one point uh, in, you know, about a decade ago now, I was feeling quite you know, clogged, you can call it writer's block, and a friend suggested that we attend uh, this event called the Bankstown Poetry Slam. It had just started, it was its first iteration, first event, um, back in February 2013, and I, you know, I was intrigued, and I went along, and I just loved what, you know, what the event had to offer. Essentially, the Bankstown Poetry Slam, now, 10 years later, is the largest regular slam in the Southern Hemisphere. And what I especially love about the Bankstown Poetry Slam is the fact that it was founded by people, um, a, a, you know, a number of uh, two young poets, rather, from Western Sydney, who wanted to create a space that was accessible, that was non-hierarchical, that allowed, you know, made poets of all backgrounds feel really welcome and feel empowered to come and share their poetry and their stories, whether it was about you know, family or love or friendship or even um, coming out or uh, war or what was happening in Palestine or Australia's inhumane refugee policies. You know, all of these things were issues, were very common topics that these poets um, felt strongly about and used poetry as a platform to speak about in a way where, you know, it wasn't subjected to any institutional restrictions any elitism that can happen you know in the art sometimes or any sort of gaze external gaze uh, that dictated the parameters for these these poets um so yeah i think it was an amazing self-determined space uh, that has you know just gotten bigger and better in the last over the last decade so that for me was really it resonated and i ended up you know continuing my poetry journey there um being challenged as a poet, writing and, and being challenged and growing as a poet by my peers and colleagues. And after that, I was propelled to keep going, uh, you know, workshops and and just um, mentorship and, and writing and putting myself out there and publishing. And now here we are, uh, publishing a a full-length collection, which, uh, you know, I I am so privileged uh, to be able to say.
0: Yes. No, it's a a beautiful uh, book and uh, and published by the University of Queensland Press, which is a a really serious publisher. So congratulations. And what were your influences in writing poetry? You said you've been writing all your life, but were there particular poets that you used to read that, you know, whose voices inspired your voice?
1: There are so many. Uh, I, I wouldn't even know where to begin. I think with my you know journey as a as a poet when I started to sort of take it seriously and realize that you know even though it started out as an accident, I really just I really love it and I want to keep going. Um, there were co- poets and contemporaries like Wo and Sheer and uh, Sophilow and Fatima Asgar um, as well as uh, poets here in so-called Australia that. I have looked up to and loved for a very long time, including Tony Birch as one of those poets. But I also think growing up in a household, you know, an Arabic-speaking household uh, of of mixed background, which you you already uh, introduced, I was very... Um, lucky to grow, you know grow up in a household of storytellers and uh, people who you know my my parents were very politically active but also really loved the arts and so there was always Arabic movies in the background or um, Arabic songs and and music and and music is often our, our Arabic songs and music are often also poetry, very, very much um, based in uh, sort of formal uh, poetry. So the likes of Fayruz and Abd halim Hafez and Umm who are um, Arab icons. Uh, so when I grew up listening to these um, artists, I think even though I didn't always necessarily completely understand, because Arabic was my second language, I didn't always understand, you know, exactly what um you know i didn't i didn't have a you know a sort of really strong grasp of the language and didn't always understand the content of the poems they were so rhythmic and so musical and so you know i just loved the way that they invoked a sort of feeling and i think in a way i almost took that on board and intuitively applied those lessons of Arabic poetry and Arabic musicality and, and, you know, the malleability of language and rhythm and rhyme and found that, you know, it kind of found its way into my own poetry and my own writing in English. So certainly those were some of, I think, the most formative foundational inspirations for me.
0: So let's go to some poems. Which poem would you like to read first?
1: I'd love to read... All the Places My Father Lost His Faith, and share that with you. I heard it was one of your favorites. Yes, uh, I although... thought a
0: beautiful poem. Yeah, go, go ahead.
1: <laughs> hard, hard to pick a favorite, I know. <laughs> um, all right, I will, I will begin. All the Places My Father Lost His Faith. My father lost his faith at the stale fringes of the brown carpet in the apartment. At his 15-hour shift, but always made it to bedtime, tended for to us with his tales of Sinbad the Adventurer. My father lost his faith at Camp David, at the cold peace that Abed Nasser's Pan-Arabism eroding. My father lost his faith at my grandfather's goodbye, begging us to go somewhere safer. My father lost his faith during delayed takeoff. He missed my grandfather's death by an hour father lost his faith in the country of men. He cried with the love reserved for sons when all he had were daughters. My father lost his faith at the cafe, longing for the kind of kushari black tea that bathes each rib. My father lost his faith at his accent, scratching its way out of his multilingual throat, at F-stop, at burgur, at hundred percent. At the rejection letters that came in the dozens at his degree, he pulled out like a birthmark, a covenant, an eleventh finger, all the generations of men before him in the folds of that paper. My father lost his face at my 30th birthday dinner. Red velvet and his leukemia diagnosis delivered that day at the hospital where the nurse kept missing the vein, his arteries recoiling with each tap. My father lost his face, the windowless room, resplendent rows of pokies calling, a calling of fathers everywhere. My father lost his face when we lost the house, an immigrant's downfall. Our last night in it, my father cried. His cries little lonely fire they cling to me like a legacy i should have cut him in half see what's eating at his rind what parting of these sutured him together his wants for a life of more i think i was terrified of seeing him then it would have been my first lesson in loving something that stopped knowing how to love me in return
0: Well, breathtaking work. Thank you. Yeah. And um, did it take long to write?
1: You know, it really depends with each poem. Uh, Sometimes a poem comes to me because of a you know a word or another poem that I read that I'm particularly you know inspired by um sometimes you know it, it's a it's a poem I've read and loved other days it's a form that I you know want to try and that's on my mind or even an issue that's on my mind, so I think uh it really depends you know the business of poetry it's just a just as much about um Making and constructing and you know assembling and reassembling words and language and commas and punctuation as much as it as it is about deconstructing and dismantling. So you know, I think when it comes down to it, uh, some poems are already almost already finished and. You just have to excavate and refine them, and that can take, you know, a little bit of time. And there are other poems that take forever because I agonize over a single word. And that is, you know, just part of the process. It's continuous. Uh, poems, I think, don't really end. You just need to know when to exit the poem. Um, and I think that, you know, that, that's part of the process, understanding that. So this one in particular would have taken, I think, from memory a fair bit of time to really just get that right.
0: Yes, well, you, you you got it right. It's it's great, and actually, what you're saying reminds me of something a f- painter friend said. It's very hard to know when to stop painting. You know, you don't want to overpaint, and uh, that's a that's a trick in it.
1: Yes, exactly right. Mm. I think sometimes you just know that it's This is a, This is. This is where you need to leave it.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, that's a really hard process. (laughs) You know, you have a little help, editorial help and deadlines. And sometimes you just know that you have to let it go. And it, and, and when you return to it, you realize that you're not the same person that wrote that poem. And even though, you know, if you go back to the time you'd write it again, but now you you just can't because it's something that you've left in the past and you've let go into the world.
0: So I'm speaking to Sarah Saleh about her new book, *The Flotation of Girls*. Okay, so where will we go to next? What would you like to read?
1: I would love to read um, city, *City, or City of Grief*. So there's a little play on words there. Um, *City* is the word *city* in English, and *City* is uh, an Arabic word for grandmother. So it's called *City of Grief*. To what To my faltering. The figs that fall here untethered to the reddened sun. Their blemished skin I peel and peel. Their teaching and I learn nothing. The brink that took us away from you. There is always brink. The jasmine bushes in the rearview mirror. The roaming of your lap palms. Pressed sweaty traps. The sifting and I find nothing. The streets I walk that do not know you. The way, the rich gorge on the world, the leaving, that was your last indignity. The agent at the airport who put our father in a locked room made him beg. The breaking news banner on the TV announcing we cannot return home. The nation that will not be home. The balcony shutters keeping out the night and all its creatures the realization that I will only be free when I want nothing. San is Arabic for human, its root, Nasa, N-A-S-A, which is to forget, so to be human is to forget, the forgetting of the past so that country may survive us, may survive itself, the past and its grudges in the knots of our back, the language that is trapped in itself, the city, city of desperation, city of grief, city of AK-47, the expectation that someone like me only knows of death and bomb and trauma and war and bomb and bomb and bomb.
0: Yes, it's um, beautiful images. The realization that I will only be free when I want nothing. Um, this city, city of desperation, city of grief, city of AK forty seven. Was there a particular city that you had in mind when you wrote
1: that? I think for me, this certainly is very um, reminiscent of of my relationship with Beirut in Lebanon. So my mother is a Palestinian uh, Lebanese, uh, you know, who uh, undocumented person, really, who grew up uh, in Lebanon as a Palestinian undocumented person. And so she has lived, and her family have lived many exiles um, because of colonialism, because of uh, civil wars. And uh, I think the last Time that I, or uh, well, one of the last times I was in Lebanon, um, it reminded me of in 2006 when we had to leave because of the the um, Israeli attack on uh, on the south of Lebanon at the time. So it, I have this relationship where city is, you know, symbolic of my grandmother who lives in Beirut and stays in Beirut and wants to die in Beirut and and will never leave at this stage, you know, as, as an elderly woman and has, you know, a, a whole has lived many lives there and has lived through many wars and through many exiles and many displacements. And at this point in her life, she's just tired. And so this, for me, was that kind of metaphor that speaks to city as person and person as city and how they hold so much and what happens when you leave them and how that stays with you.
0: Let's go to um, your poem about Gaza uh, with everything that's going on right now. I think it's uh, particularly... Important to hear. This is
1: live from Gaza. Funeral these headlines. They're insidious and the facts, the theatricality of chaos, our land, our traumas, rights to self defense until complete quiet. Yesterday and today and tomorrow. Report the stories of sirens. Shelter, monster, mayhem, and death toll. The bias of those under bombardment, the false equivalence, the certainty in script and circumstance, in distortion, in the twitch and spasm, the absolute lie, no, the absolute loss, telling the truth and power of the narrative, the maybe in the testimony. The complicated in the details, the question in alleged, the myth in question. Existence is assault, is escalation, is conflict, is dozens killed, is airstrikes. Investigation is children, is shield, is the militants, is schools, is sides. Reza is, uh, is retaliation, is the buildings, is humanitarian crisis, is strip? is ceasefire. Freedom is sand, is world, is cage, is murder, is ours. Existence is assault, is escalation, is conflict, is. Dozens killed is airstrikes, is investigation, is children, is shield, is the militants, is schools, is sites, is Gaza, is retaliation, is the buildings, is humanitarian crisis, is strip, is ceasefire, is freedom, is stand, is world, is cages, murder is ours.
0: Well, thank you for reading that. Sarah. It's uh, it's a great poem and uh, it, it seems particularly pertinent at this moment when Gaza is being flattened.
1: Yes, I actually wrote this in um, following the attacks in May 2021 on Gaza two years ago. I was commissioned to write it for Rabbit Poetry Journal, and they specifically wanted um, non-fiction pieces that were responding to media coverage. I think the theme was actually reportage and given the way that we know um, there are many elements of mainstream media that are quite, um, you know, complicit in the way that they cover uh, what is happening in Palestine through these, you know, the weaponization of terms like neutral and objective, and the way that they obfuscate using uh, language like both sides and conflict, I think, was really weighing heavy. I mean, even during the, the dispossession and ethnic cleansing that was happening in the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah, there were media outlets reporting it as simply an eviction, completely depoliticized and completely, you know, in um, isolation or in vacuum of the actual ongoing reality and the context of what's happening. And I find that that is the case, you know, with with many media outlets. Unfortunately, whether it's due to expediency and the lack of space and just the 24-hour news cycle, or whether it's due to more, you know, nefarious reasons, I, I don't wish to speculate, but either way, you know, when you think about what the role of media and what the role of journalists and producers and people who work in these spaces is, I, I really think language in the way that we, what we choose to use and how we choose to present it, and then the absence of what isn't there, what we choose not to include, it speaks volumes either way. Yep. You know, and, and I guess I would really just like to, to add, uh, you know, even though this poem in particular was written a couple of years ago, I actually wrote the one of the, first poems in this collection is called The Year That Changed Everything and it's subtitled 1948. And I was reading it at my launch the other day and 1948 uh is obviously you know or rather maybe perhaps not obviously to some people but it is uh the um the year that the Nakba the Palestinian Nakba took place which essentially led to the dispossession and ethnic cleansing of 750,000 Palestinians from their homes that's a conservative figure um and for Palestinians you know the Nakba Uh, ongoing dispossession, ongoing colonization is is not, it's never ended. You know, it began in 1948 with the establishment of um, the colonial um, settler, colonial project of Israel, but it's ongoing to this day. And so when I wrote this poem, 1948, and I was reading it at this launch, it dawned on me that, you know, this poem could have literally been written about Gaza right now. And I think that's what I really what really breaks my heart in that you know we're still writing about these things it's on the ongoing nature of the palestinian struggle for freedom and violence that we have been brutally subjected to day in day out for decades and you know i think poetry uh, to quote my uh, palestinian poet friend najwan Darwish, she says poetry is the daughter of history You know, and I think poetry is so powerful because we don't, as a medium, we don't need to go back. I don't need to crawl back or climb back into the decades past into history. And yet with a single poem can bring, you know, so much clarity to this issue. It can serve as an important um, intervention. And so whilst I feel quite distressed that these poems are relevant, um, I'm also heartened that people want to read our stories and amplify our voices and learn more about what's going on. And so I really hope that this collection is an opening and I hope that it moves people um, to different, you know, to, to different and perhaps new types of seeing and understanding what is happening in Palestine right now, even if, you know, we don't need to go into the full detail of it. I hope I hope it serves as a, as a sort of portal of sorts.
0: I think it's a portal into many worlds, uh, not just... Um, Palestine on the Ground, but also your experience of migration and and the diaspora experience in Western Sydney and, you know, your own life story. I mean, I think there's many worlds in this book.
1: I couldn't agree more, and I'm really glad that you said that because I think that speaks to many things, but in particular... The multiplicity of our experiences as Palestinians and as people who are, you know, full, you know, bodied, you, you yeah, mean, exactly, who live, you know, very messy, very very messy, rather <laughs> very messy, very complex lives. And I, I love that, you know, in the same breath as being able to read a poem on Gazan, right, you know, share that as part of my collection. I'm also writing about experiences that aren't just a response to this. To this crisis and this ongoing catastrophe, but rather, our way to uh, you know, uh, but rather, is a poem that asserts my full existence and my um, who I am, and you know, the kind of the intersections and geographies that I live today. And so, I think that for me is probably one of the most critical functions of art, being you know, being able to to write to these issues uh, in 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 this way.
0: Yes, well, it's been wonderful speaking to you, Sarah. Um, And I hope uh, we can make time for a second program because there's an awful lot we haven't covered yet.
1: (laughs) Yes, I'm very aware. I saw some of the questions you wanted to ask and I really loved them. So I want to thank you so much for your thoughtfulness and for um, bringing, you know, all of that to this collection and, and just really dissecting it with me. I'm really enjoying the conversation and I hope we can do it again.
0: Yeah, I hope we can continue. Um, So I've been speaking to Sarah Saleh about her new book, The Flirtation of Girls. My name is Di Cousins and this has been the 3CR Spoken Word Programme.